Amen, amen. He has seen fit to wake us up and start us on a new day. I, I'm thankful for this moment and this opportunity. It's such a blessing to be here at Watkinsville First Baptist. I just need you to know that our church, Life Church of Athens, is in the heart of Athens. And I drive past this church every Sunday morning about 4.30 a.m. For the last five and a half years, without fail, when I pass this building, I pray for your pastor, I pray for your leadership, and I pray for you. Five and a half years. And I love this church. Amen. I love this church. Uh, this was actually the first church that I attended uh, my freshman year at, at UGA. I can remember uh, living in uh, Creswell Hall. We called it the Green Dinosaur back then. And my roommate said, hey, there's a church I want to take you to. Now, I grew up in an environment that wasn't very diverse. Uh, and so my honest first thought whenever I walked into the gym over there, when I walked in, my first honest thought was, man, there's a lot of white people. Um, <laughs> I'm just being real with you. <laughs> but it was a sweet atmosphere. It was a sweet place, and it still is. And I thank God for the faithful work of this church. I thank God for your pastor. Do you love your pastor? Let's, Yeah. I tell you what, Pastor Carlos, he's one of the most kind-hearted, even-keeled men I've ever met in my life, okay? You could go outside and we could say, Pastor Carlos, the sky's falling, and he'd say, you know what, it is. Um, <laughs> let's hold hands and pray. Like, that's what he would say. I mean, he's just sweethearted, and I thank God for his, his strength and his leadership over this church for over 20 years, and, and God has blessed him, and, and I thank him for trusting me this morning with the handling of the word. Uh, I'm thankful for the fact that Pastor Carlos, he celebrates what God is doing in our church. Here pretty soon we're going to be breaking ground in Oconee County with our church facilities right off Summit Drive, touching 441. And Lord willing, we'll be breaking ground this year. And not for a moment has he had anything that was territorial or, or any of that. Pastor Carlos is excited to see more gospel-centered churches come to this county because he knows that there's enough lost people to go around. And he's excited to see us come, and I celebrate him. I celebrate what he's done. So I'm sure he's watching this sermon. He's away with his family vacation, and I hope he has a great time. And, Pastor, I hope you get that pecan tan that you wanted um, while you were at the beach. All right. If you're ready for the word, say, I'm ready. ready. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning, God. Lord, we thank you that you've brought us here as a divine act of your grace and mercy. God, we thank you that this is not by happenstance, this is not just a coincidence, that every person in every seat in this building is a part of your sovereign plan. Lord Jesus, I just pray that we would not come here out of piety or out of checking a box, a religious box, or doing this to make ourselves feel good, or doing this to simply say, I need a little, little religion today. Lord, we're after your heart. We're after relationship. God, I pray that the word this morning that is communicated, Father, would not drop on deaf ears, but drop on ready hearts. God, we thank you that the scripture tells us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And this morning, as we stand to exposit the word of God, we stand on what is forever. So, Lord God, be honored here this morning in the preaching of your word. Use me as a vessel. I'm yours. Father, we love you. If you agree with that prayer, say amen. 
Amen. Open your Bibles to Psalms 91. We're going to keep tracking with uh, the series that you all are currently in. I'm thankful to be in this. At my church, we're actually going through Psalms as well. Um, if I had a sermon title for this morning's message, it would be this. An eternal promise for temporary pain. An eternal promise for temporary pain. I'd like to read the text in its entirety and then go back and exposit some of the truth that we see Possibly in a way that you've never seen it before. Starting in verse 1 of Psalms 91, it says this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions or his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense or the repayment of the wicked. Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. In their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's some good stuff right there. Now, Psalms 91 is undoubtedly one of the most quoted and memorized psalms out of the entire 150 psalms. You've probably seen it on greeting cards, on get well cards, on anniversary cards, baby shower cards, holiday cards, graduation cards, get out of jail soon cards. And I think the reason that it is so seemingly palatable is because it deals with three things we all want. It deals with safety, it deals with protection, and it deals with deliverance. And if we could be honest this morning, a lot of our prayers probably come out of a desire for needing one of those three things. In the mornings, maybe we get up and we pray, Lord, please keep my family safe throughout this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, please please protect our kids as they're at school, protect our troops overseas, protect our journey as we travel down this road. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, please deliver my cousin, grandma, auntie, uncle, friend from this sickness, this disease. In Jesus' name, amen. Safety, protection, deliverance. And here's the thing. At face value of Psalms 91 of what we just read, it does give us good, strong reason to pray those prayers with complete confidence and conviction, knowing that, that he will command his angels concerning us to guard us in all our ways. We can know that when we call to God, he will answer us and he will be with us in times of trouble. You can have that confidence in that prayer. You can know that he will cover you with his feathers, that under his wings you can find refuge. And and his faithfulness to us is a shield and a buckler. We can know that because his sign is sealed and is 
delivered. It is our promise to have. But what do you do when you believe Psalms 91 to be true? You've memorized it. You can quote it. You believe it. What do you do when you trust in that? And the person that you prayed over for safety or for protection or for deliverance, they still got cancer and died. What do you do when you've prayed and you've fasted and you de declared the scripture in verse 7 that a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you and they still died of COVID? What do you do when you've declared verse 16 over your womb that with long life you will satisfy me and either you couldn't get pregnant or you still lost the baby? What do you do? God, you said in verse 14 that you will deliver me and that you will protect me, but I still lost the job. I'm still dealing with difficult people. My marriage is still on the rocks. I still have health issues. My kids still are not saved. I still don't know how we're going to get through this. I thought once I got saved that Psalms 91 was a guarantee that nothing would happen to me. Is there an inconsistency with God's word and my reality? And the answer is no. There just might be an inconsistency in your exposition of the Bible. And your understanding of what it means to belong to the king. So let's take a deeper dive into Psalms 91. If you know the scriptures, you'll know that Psalms 91, it was quoted in another place in the New Testament. i actually like for you to flip over there. Turn to Luke chapter 4 if you would. If you've got your Bibles. Now in Luke chapter 4, chapter 3 sets us up where Jesus is getting launched into his, his, his ministry. Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist says, I ain't even worthy to lace up his sandals and you want me to baptize him. And Jesus says, you got to do this, man. So he baptizes Jesus and we see this incredible scene where the voice of God comes down and it descends like a dove. And he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Amazing, amazing moment. And then we get to Luke chapter 4, and verse 1 says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Wait a minute. We just had this glorious moment. Voice of God comes down. My son, well pleased. Hooray, wilderness. Who led him? The Holy Spirit. Interesting. Verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. I'd say hungry if it were me. <laughs> Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a hot butter biscuit. <laughs> and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So the temptation comes, Jesus passes the first temptation with flying coals. Well, here comes the second temptation in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. 
and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He passes the second temptation. But here comes the third. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan just quoted Psalms 91. That's Psalms 91. Did you know that Satan knows the Bible too? But Jesus answers him in verse 7. It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. So what's going on here? Right? We see in the New Testament where guys like Paul quote the Old Testament. John does it. Peter does it. Jesus does it. Now Satan does it. Satan is quoting the, New Te- the Old Testament. Can we agree this morning that if Satan is given an exposition of Scripture, it's probably wrong? Can we agree to that? Satan essentially says to Jesus, you can throw yourself off of this temple pinnacle because Psalms 91 said that nothing bad will ever happen to you. You won't even stub your toe against a stone. So start feeling froggy, Jesus, and leave. Psalms 91 said... you. The very utmost, you dash your foot against a stone, Jesus. And at the core basic understanding of Satan's flawed exposition of Psalms 91, he's saying this. He's saying God is legit as long as nothing goes wrong. But God is a fake, he's a phony, and he's a fraud if you even stub your toe. Because Psalms 91 said that it wouldn't happen. This isn't the only place where we see this suffer-free theology in the book of Job. Job's friend, they equated Job's suffering with the lack of God's presence and something that Job had did wrong. They they go to Job and say, man, what did you do? What did you do wrong? All this pain and suffering, it's it's your fault. God has abandoned you because you've been a bad boy. His own wife said, why not just curse God and die? Just be done with it. But there's a very interesting statement from God that he makes at the end of the book of Job. In chapter 42, verse 7, God looks at the friends of Job, and this is what he says to them. He says, I'm angry with you because you have not spoken truth about me. All that they said and tying up Job's performance with God's provision, God said, you are not telling the truth about me. To say if you trust in God that suffering will never come your way, but but if you trust in God, then no suffering will ever befall you. Please hear me this morning. At its core, that is satanic exposition of God's word. Here's even more proof. In Matthew 16, Jesus, he takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And he's setting up a magnificent moment as his disciples are there. And Jesus began to ask them a question. He says, who do men say that I am? Well, the response that the disciples give is that some say that you are maybe Elijah or John the Baptist or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. 
But then Jesus does like he always does, and he looks us in the face and says, who do you say that I am? In that moment, Peter steps up, and he's often known for sticking his foot in his mouth, but this time he got it right. Because he says, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, my guy, you got it. And flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. You just got wavelengths from heaven, man. And it's a celebratory moment because Peter got something right. And then Jesus begins to say this in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. At the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Well, Peter hears this, and this is what Peter decides to do. He decides to take Jesus to the side, and the scriptures say that he began to rebuke Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you, that's a bad idea. But he begins to rebuke Jesus, and this is what he says. He says, Jesus... Far be it from you, don't suffer and stuff, don't be talking about that, man. The cross and death and all that, no, we got a good thing going on. We got a good crowd following us. You don't, even, don't, don't use the S word, we don't use that word around here. Far be that from you, Jesus, don't, you don't need to do that. And what is Jesus' response in verse 23? Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. He calls him Satan, because Peter tries to deny the plan of the cross. Peter says that suffering is not necessary. Jesus calls him Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You want an easy boy religion. You just want it to be smooth sailing and no bumps along the road, but there's a purpose in the pain, Peter. Now listen, you might read this, you might even read Luke 4 and say, well, the suffering in those passages is, that's Jesus' suffering, and Jesus took all the suffering. And so there's no need for us to do it anymore because Jesus did it all, right? All the suffering was his to have, so we don't need to have any of that. Well, look at what Jesus says next in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, Jesus then puts the ball in their court. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we know this, that the cross is a symbol of suffering. And the Bible says you've got one to carry. Now the cross that you are carrying is not the the redeeming cross that Jesus carried, he's already covered and paid for our sin. There's no more of that to carry. Jesus paid it all. But the cross that we carry, according to the text here, is the one of self-denial. He said, deny yourself. The cross that we bear is the one that involves suffering for following Jesus in a secular society. The cross that we bear is the one that requires us to lose our life so that we can find life in Christ. Satan says to Jesus, jump and you won't be hurt. Jesus responds with, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to test. Jesus himself quotes Old Testament. Well, where does Jesus get that from? He gets it from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, which says, you shall not put the Lord your God to test as you tested him at Massah. Well, if you read that, Hopefully you want to dig a little deeper and say, well, what in the world is Messiah? What happened there? Well, that takes us to Exodus 17, 7. 
And it says, he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is he even among us? There's a battle being fought against them. They are God's people, but they began to question the providence and provision and protection of God. See, when the protection of the providence and the provision of God was questioned by Satan in Luke chapter 4, Jesus then purposefully points back to Old Testament truth where the Lord was displeased with the people because they questioned if God was going to show up or not. And in essence, God says, don't even test me. Don't even question if I'm going to be there for you or not. It's not even a question. Listen, you may be struggling with that question this morning. God, are you among us or not? You might be in a very difficult situation this morning. You might be dealing with family issues, health issues, kid issues, work issues. And you trust Psalms 91 to be true. But it's pushing you to a place because you're still walking through the suffering and the struggle and the pain. And you begin to question, God, are you even among me? Are you, where are you at? But the answers according to Psalms 91 is that not for a moment has he forsaken us. Not for a moment has he abandoned us. Why? Because verse 1 of Psalms 91 is true. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. It's there for us to hold to in the midst of the reality you face. In the midst of the hard times that might lie ahead. And if you are in a place where you say, well, I ain't got no struggle. Well, here's my word to you. Just keep living. Just keep living. But Psalms 91 is true. You can take it to the bank. However, there is textual implication that point us to this paramount truth that qualifies those who get to take a withdrawal from the bank of Psalms 91. And the qualifier for Psalms 91 is this, you must belong to him. You must belong to him. And belonging to him involves a few more things that we see in Psalms 91. Belonging to him and being qualified for Psalms 91 means that you will dwell in him. That's verse 1 and verse 9. He that dwells. You also must abide in him, according to verse 1. He that abideth. You must trust in him. Verse 2 tells us that. And you must know his name. Verse 14 tells us that. Those who experience God as a saving refuge are the ones who dwell in him. They are the ones who abide in him. They are the ones who trust in him. And they are the ones who know his name. Now, doing these things, they they don't negate the storms of life. They don't negate the storms. But they just ensure that you have a mighty fortress in the midst of the storm. There's a 16th century reformer named Martin Luther. 
And Martin Luther was reading through Psalms 46. And as a result of reading through Psalms 46, Martin Luther penned a very familiar hymn titled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he said, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. A bulwark is a fortress, it's impenetrable, it's a safe place, never, ever failing. And a few refrains down, Martin Luther says, and he must win the battle. He must win. He will win. He has won. This is the God that we serve. So in the midst of the storms and the the winds and waves of this life that we absolutely will face, yes, we're going to pray for deliverance. We're going to pray for protection. We're going to pray for safety. We're going to pray for healing. We're going to walk by faith. We're going to trust God for miracles. But just know that even if you don't see a, a, a change of situation, know that the greatest miracle is the fact that God has changed your heart. He's changed your heart. And you belong to him. You are a walking miracle. Do you understand how miraculous salvation is? Do you understand that it's nothing that we could earn or deserved or work hard enough to do? The salvation that we have, we are recipients of. It was an extension of God's good grace to call us unto himself. Jesus calls out to us and he says, come forth, come to life. It's not that we were just sitting on top of the water and and struggling for air and trying our best to exist. No, the truth is that we were dead in our sin. We were absolutely dead and Jesus came to us and breathed the breath of life into us and then we became living souls. What could we do to save ourselves? Nothing. And the fact that you belong to him, the fact that you are in Christ is a miracle. You are a walking, living miracle. And we rejoice in that, and that allows us to rejoice even in the midst of our suffering. Ultimately, every word of protection that is written in Psalms 91, it will come to pass for the believer. Not a jot or tittle of God's word will not be accomplished nor fulfilled. Everything you see in Psalms 91 is yours to have if you're in Christ. Everything. And the reason we get to stand in that place, in that posture, is because Jesus has won victory over death, hell, and the grave. It's a good place to say amen, by the way. He's won victory over it all. He is our triumphant king. And even in the midst of the struggles of this life, as those who are in Jesus this morning, you get to experience deliverance. And it's there for you either now or then when you behold his face. You get to be healed now or then. But God's word is accomplished. It is a win-win for us. A win-win. See, the joy of Psalms 91 isn't that we get to avoid suffering. The joy of Psalms 91 is that we get the Savior. It's Jesus. Satan even himself, when he was tempting Jesus in Luke 4, he said, for the scripture said that they would come and protect you and bear you up. Ultimately, Psalms 91 is fulfilled in Jesus. Satan himself validates that. He says, this is talking about you. We get the Savior. We must dwell in him. 
We must abide in him. We must trust in him. We must know his name. Do you know his name this morning? Do you know the power that comes behind the name of Jesus? Do you know the rescuing, saving power of Jesus? The fact that he doesn't always change your situation and circumstance, but he can change your perspective. He can change your heart. You must trust in his name. Within this text, the name Yahweh is mentioned. It speaks to the power, the sovereignty of God. The name Elohim is also mentioned in this text. It speaks to his covenant-keeping love. The Hebrew word for that is this word hesed. It is his covenant-keeping word. The fact that he cannot default on his promises. The fact that his love is not temperamental, it's not conditional. It's not if you do this and I'll do that and that'll give you my love or more of my love or less of my love. No, it is covenant-keeping love. I'm thankful that we serve a God who's a covenant-keeping God. Keeps his promises, keeps his covenant. But do you know the name? A couple of weeks ago, um, I was at our neighborhood pool, and my sons were out there swimming. Uh, Spencer's six, Nash is four. He's a buckwild little heathen in my house. Um, But I love him. I love him. But recently, Nash has wanted more freedom in the pool because he sees McKenna swimming around. He sees Spencer swimming around all over the place. And Nash is like, get these swimmies off of me, man. I want to be free like everybody else, right? And so he's, he's gotten to a point to where we, feel, we felt comfortable that we could take the swimmies off and he could, he could get around a little bit. So we take him off. We give him rules. We give him regulations. We say, all right, Nash, here's the deal. Here's the wall. This is three feet, which you can stand, and your head comes above water. But below that, you can't go because you can't stand. And so Nash is like, okay. So he's there flooding around, pulling around. He'll kick off the wall and get close to that forefoot, but he doesn't go past it. He comes on right back and kicks off a little bit again, and then he'll come right on back. Well, at one point, Nash gets a little overconfident, and he kicks off that wall, and he goes a little bit too far. Now, I'm looking at notes and stuff, and I was just reading something and studying, sitting at the pool, just kind of going through something for sermon prep or something devotion or something I was doing. And Nash, he, he pushed off, and he got to a place to where he, he realized kind of that he was too far, but he, he started working and struggling and thinking, you know, I can get back to the edge. And so he goes down and, and bounces back up, and he's like, okay, I, I'm okay. And then he goes right down and he bounces back up and he's like, I'm a little less okay. He bounces down and come back up and goes, I ain't okay, all right? This ain't good. And so I'm locked into what I'm doing. I'm studying, I'm reading, I'm doing all this kind of stuff. And the only thing that I hear Nash say is, Dad. That's all I heard. And immediately it catches my attention. You know why it catches my attention? Because I know my son's voice. And I know the inflections of his voice and what it means when he's happy, when he's sad, when he feels like he's in trouble. And it was a moment to where he felt like he was in trouble and it caught my ear. In that moment, we jump in, we get him out, he's upset and he's crying. But he knew to call on a name that was stronger than his name. See, Nash knew the rules. He knew what I told him not to do, but he decides to do it anyway, and he lands himself in trouble. He lands himself in a spot that he cannot get himself out of. 
but he knew to call on his daddy. How many times has the Lord given us the parameters by which we should live? He said, this is as far as I want you to go in this category and in this area. You go any farther than this and you're going to be in trouble. He's given us the regulations and, and the, the rules and, 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 and the relationship and all the things that he's given to us. But how many times have we pushed off that wall a little too, bit too far in our own confidence and our own pride? And we got to a place to where we could not rescue ourselves. But here's the benefit of the believer. If you call on his name. Yeah, if you call on the name that is above every name, if you call on the name that has never failed and never will fail, if you call on the name that which demons tremble, you call on the name that has overcome death, hell, and the grave, if you call on the name of Jesus, he is quick to rescue. He is quick to save. He is quick to be a mighty fortress for his sons and his daughters because he knows his sheep's boys. He knows your boys. And maybe you're in a place right now to where you feel like you can't call on anybody else. Because maybe other people don't get it. They don't understand what you're going through. They won't be compassionate. They won't be gracious towards you. Even when you feel isolated and alone, if you feel like nobody else gets what I'm going through, your Heavenly Father does. Because a mighty fortress is our God. As I finish this morning as the worship team comes this is an eternal promise for us in the midst of our temporary pain and we don't approach psalms 91 as if god is a genie in a bottle and you got to rub him the right way who sang that britney spears is that right i don't remember aguilera that's right you heathen how do you know that um just kidding <laughs> but we approach psalms 91 humbly, right? We, we, we approach it in light of the grace and the mercy that God has extended to us. We approach Psalms 91 thankful. And we get depressed into what Psalms 91 says that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide under the shadow of the Almighty. We get to say to the Lord that he is our refuge and our strength because in him we trust. We don't trust in our bank account. We don't trust in our government. We don't trust in our possessions. We trust in our God. Verse 14, because he holds fast to me in love, he will deliver me. God says I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him, and I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That speaks to eternity. We know in the midst of pain to count it all joy. James tells us that. We know that in our suffering, we don't suffer as those who have no hope. We don't suffer the same way that the world does. Maybe there's some things in our lives that we've drifted on a little bit and we've been in some areas that we've put ourselves in and have caused some suffering of our own because of disobedience. But God is gracious. God is loving. God is truth. He calls you back. Don't run away from him. Run to him. As Jesus is on the cross, there's two thieves on either side. And the two men on either side are the ones who deserve to be there, not Jesus. 
And as they're standing along this thoroughfare, and Roman guards are around outside of the city gate in Jerusalem, one decides to criticize Jesus. Again, if you're really who you say you are, why don't you get us down from here? Why don't you get us out of this? One criticizes, but the other clings to them. He says, I, I'm getting what I deserve. I deserve to be here. My sin, my egregious sin has landed me here. But Jesus, if you would, if you are who you say you are, remember me. And Jesus extends a hand of mercy and grace and salvation to a man who had been a criminal sinful, but in this very moment he is at the throne of the Savior because he's experienced him as his fortress. Where are you this morning? Have you experienced the saving hand of God as your mighty fortress? Are you trying to run this race on your own strength and your own merits? Will you humble yourself enough to say, Jesus, I cannot do this on my own. I've tried, I've tried. And it just leaves me with even more anxiety, even more anxiousness, even more depression. And this morning I want to surrender it all to you. If that's you, I'm going to pray for you. If you were in the rough seas of life, Psalms 46 tells us that there's times where the the seas rock and roll, and the mountains are even cast into the midst of the sea. The seas represent that which is tumultuous in our lives, but the mountain represents that which is supposed to be steadfast and immovable. So what do you do when the immovable starts moving? What do you do when you thought was firm and solid begins to shift and shake? We hold to the scripture. We hold to Psalms 91. And we trust it to be true because God is truth. Father, we thank you so much for the word this morning. God, thank you for this time with my friends, Lord, in this church. God, I pray a blessing upon them. Lord, continue to do mighty, miraculous things through Watkinsville First Baptist. God, thank you for the faithful work. God, even just hearing about missionaries who just returned from Asia. God, what a blessing to carry the word to the nations. God, may we be those who carry out your marching orders of making disciples and that's making disciples all over the place that's making disciples in Watkinsville and at Barbaritos and at the high school and the elementary and the middle school and the classroom and the boardroom on the athletic fields we've all been given an assignment but none of it can be done unless we abide in you apart from you we can do nothing so Father use us To the glory of your name. It's in that name I pray. Amen.